Hey, what's up, you guys? Welcome back to Gabin with Gab. Today we're on episode six of Choreographic Cocktails. So today we're going to be talking about uh, ballet, of course. Um, my fave. Uh, the first <laughs> that was that sounded kind of sarcastic. I'm sorry. Um, so the first thing that we're going to be talking about is that uh, we were assigned three different ballets to read about. And my ballet was Le No. I'm going to say it's Le No. Um, I hope that's pronounced correctly. Um, but some things to reflect back on over that particular ballet was um, the historical and political things that were going on during this piece was that it was first created um, after the Russian Revolution, but the music had already existed prior to this, and that um, one of the biggest influences of this piece was um, it had reflections of the social constructs in marriage and the family lives. Um, so marriage was like an overall theme, basically that's what the title is. Um, but it was a peasant type of wedding, and it was shaped from like the politics um, and both of the bride and groom were stuck in this fate of marriage during this time. Um, and so the music composer during this was Stravinsky. And he had ended up composing this music before the creation of Rite of Spring, which was a very crazy piece, I will say that. Um, not particularly one of my favorites, but it was definitely interesting. Um, but he wanted to like display this abstract, um, rich type of social, socio-religious um, folk matter. And that's why it had, was connected to the, this typical peasant wedding scene. Um, but he also brought up that it is based on Russian church because of all the references that he makes about the saints and like the Virgin Mary. But he did put a modern twist on that. Um, but he did express that there were many types of cliches and quotes of wedding sayings, as well as including traditional imagery in this. Um, what was interesting, just like in all old pieces that I've, I'm starting to realize there's a, there's a theme, is that um, women were represented through sorrow and submission to their uh, husbands, or like, you know, to men in general. And... I feel like this is an overall theme in a lot of dances is that women are always seen as submissive. Um, contrary to like Firebird, Firebird, she had some like bad bitch power going on there, but that's besides the point. Um, and their hair was very symbolic on what was going on. So I think I, if I, if I do remember correctly, it stood for like virginity um, and like purity of the woman or like their relationship status um, as well as sexual violence that went on. But the men were represented through these, you know, hard hitting movements and um, strength and this assertion to them. Basically what we normally associate men with as I'm doing air quotations, because like, why, like, why do we still do that? Anywho. But yeah, women were seen as like, basically these stay-at-home moms like they were the laborers they were just there to pop out these babies as well as um 
taking care of literally all the house chores as the men were, you know, going out and working. Um, but yeah, so it was not, it was basically the traditional type of household that you would see back in the day. Um, makes me kind of uncomfortable to even think about that. Anywho, um, this piece depicts like the typical male and female roles in ballet with the men doing how I said the intricate uh, work versus female doing more submissive and that they're supposed to uphold these standards, which ballet, I think in general, that men and women are always supposed to hold these standards to keep this codified technique the exact same as it progresses and evolves throughout history. Um, but this ballet also had utilized art to influence it. And um, as we've learned in the previous readings of ballet is that literature and art had a big factor in a lot of these creations of ballets. Um, it wasn't just this one. A lot of them based their ballets off of that or like fol folklore, things like that. Um, excuse me, sorry. Um, yeah, so that's basically, I guess, my spiel on that section since I didn't touch on the other two ballets that were in there. Um, but the Rite of Spring was also in there, which that was a very crazy piece and very uncomfortable, I would say. Um, it has like a dissonance in the music and it's just like, it makes me not have that good of a feeling when I'm listening to it. But they did say that people were, like, punching each other um, when they heard this and that people were, like, automatically, like, rejected from this as soon as they heard the music. And not going to lie, like, the costumes kind of deteriorated me from, like, getting into it, too, because it's, like, an old Russian, um, like, I don't know, tribe and they have like these tribal costumes and these long braids and it's just very, I don't know, not my type of piece to get into. And then the other piece that I didn't touch on was Firebird, which that kind of defied the laws of gender norms, I would say, since, you know, the woman is like the main attraction in that piece. And she's like, I don't know, showing that she's like powerful obviously, because she's a firebird. But yeah, so I'm going to move on to the other part of this um, podcast. Um, and let's talk about some balletic astonishments. So there were um, five important ballet choreographers during this time, which was Michael Fokin, Vaslav Nijinsky, Leonid Massin, Bronislava Nijinska, and George Balanchine. Um, and during this time, I feel like we often hear about Nijinsky the most because that name just gets brought up more frequently than all these others. And so does Balanchine because Balanchine was more relevant, closer to like our time, I would say, because um, he was alive, what, 50s? Uh, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But anywho, the point is, is that those were all like way before my time. And this one's a little bit closer to my time, even though it was still before. Um, so, yeah. And another person that I wanted to bring up was 
Dagaliv. I don't think I said that correctly. But this is like the main guy in this section of reading that I found really interesting. Um, but he was encouraged by Alexander ben- Benoit, I want to say that is, uh, to introduce Russian ballet to the Western Europe um, because it hadn't migrated over there yet. And some important dancers to note during this reading were like Anna Pavlova, which she was known as basically like, whenever you thought of ballerina, you thought of Anna Pavlova. Even though she wasn't like, I guess the best, she was just the most well-known one and she just had a certain way of like holding herself. Um, Another one was Tamara Karsavina. I'm really butchering these, I'm sorry, but I do want to mention them. Yek uh, Tarina, Geltzer, Vera Karali, Vaslav Nijinsky again, like I said earlier, and Mikhail Mordkin and Adolf Baum. And these dancers actually grew into a company. Um, and they revamped the Theater du Chalet. And to get more people to come, he, um, I'm just going to call him D. Diagoliv, I think that's his name. <laughs> I'm calling him D because I don't really know how to pronounce it very well. Um, but he sent free tickets to basically all these hot actresses, and he's like, "Please come um, and see the show." Um, but yeah, so it was Prince Igor, and the audience wanted to basically embrace the dancers after this because they loved it. Um, and this was choreographed by Folking. D wanted a, the company provided him opportunity to stage the ballets that he desired. I feel like I'm not making any sense right now. I was talking, but it's okay. I'm getting to the point. Um, the audience was amazed at the vigor and exoticism of Folking's creations because his creations were so like amazing, I guess, to the audience. Um, Firebird was another thing that was brought up in the last reading and this one. Um, but just to mention uh, Stravinsky's first ballet score, which was based on Russian fairy tales. Um, and this chapter that I read about talked about a plethora of ballets like Firebird. And then we get into, um, I don't even know how to say it, but it's an Arabian night story. And there's, like, a Cleopatra one. There's just so many different ballets that were brought up in this. Um, But, yeah, there was even ones that were, like, passionate and stirred up scandals. There was another one that uh, Leon Baskett's setting during one of his ballets was basically considered an orgy in itself because of the bright colors. And I don't necessarily know what that means (laughs) to think of something as an orgy because of bright colors or like I mean they're probably talking about the movement was very suggestive I will say that um but I thought that was interesting and then um for the Cleopatra one she was carried on like a mummy so these are very extravagant pieces all of them that I was reading about very interesting um one of Stravinsky's famous scores was Petrushka and that was uh, basically an eloquent doll suffering from humanity. 
And I thought that was an interesting one. And I loved watching videos of that because I've seen that not in person, but online. Um, some other stuff to note was that Folkings Ballet was very iconic, just the fact that it was very compact. Um, and he s saw that one act ballet as a choreographic norm in Western Europe and America. And what he said is no such thing as a single all-purpose balletic style. Um, but yeah, he choreographed appropriately to the story or the setting or the theme, and the works were very hot-blooded. Um, I didn't really know necessarily how to take that, but I thought that was interesting how they worded that. And this is where he wanted to elevate the male roles because there was a lot of females coming into play. And before that, as I said in, I think, my previous podcast, uh, there were many dances that were meant for females, but they wanted males to do the roles instead. And this was like an ongoing thing for a while. So the fact that women were starting to, you know, kind of raise hell and by raise hell, I mean, like, actually, like, pushing themselves into like the spotlight instead of, you know, men being in control of everything. Like that was kind of crazy and iconic. Um, some other stuff is that they realized that his pieces contained highly dramatic passages and dance sequences that existed to, to, to display the beauty and motion itself. And I really liked that. That was directly from the reading. Um, but he also created, you know, a few pieces that didn't even have a plot. Um, Les Sifis, which was like a pioneer of contemporary um, abstract ballet. And it was a tribute to the Romantic era. But one thing that he did do was he freed choreographers who were interested in dance drama from the need to pad their ballets with like divertissements. Um, so he basically gave kind of that freedom for people to do things more than just follow these like crazy plots or these crazy like folklore, fairy tale, whatever, you know, these very intense things, um, which was really interesting. Um, but later, Folkin left the ballet Fuses Fus for his professional relations with um, D because they had become increasingly, like, strained. Um, but one of the problems was that he did not always separate the artistic life from the personal life. It was all just one thing. Um, and he did little to hide, like, homosexuality and joked with, you know, his male, like, friends, colleagues, whatever, um, for having such a morbid interest in women. I thought that was funny. Um, but he was very infatuated by Nijinsky. Uh, and Nijinsky was kind of like his own, um, I don't know, his own little, I want to say like the person that he was in, kind of infatuated with, I guess. Um, Nijinsky also appeared to be very difficult, but on stage he was very electrifying. Um he had this ability to like be given a role and like embody that role, which was really, really interesting. Um, and this was directly from the reading is that they said vigorous beyond anything human 
feline to a certain degree. And how I took that was, well, one, it was weird to be referred to as feline, but um, that his movements were smooth and, like, silky and, like, he was, like, light on his feet and effortless, you know? Um, and they said that he defied the laws of equilibrium, um, which I think a lot of men do because their center of gravities, I think, are, like, higher. I don't know if that's scientifically proven, but, like, sometimes men can jump higher than women or vice versa. Um, whew. but Nijinsky's ballets were very controversial. As you heard earlier, I did mention Rite of Spring, causing, you know, that fights and the booze, and people were very turned off by basically all of it. Um, and the choreo was very, like, unconventional in that. Later on, Nijinsky did mess up, and he got married, but when coming back, D just dismissed him. He was like, I don't need you anymore, basically. After he was so infatuated with him, he's like, oh, never mind. Don't need you anymore since you left me. Um, real drama there. But he missed performances, accused people of attacking him, and was scared of trapdoors, which was really weird. Um, I guess I would be scared of them too. But he was mentally ill, and he quit in 1917. D's next prodigy was Leonid Massing, and he believed that ballet could be as innovative as painting or music. Um, and some later stars of D's, D's, I Dagleave or whatever, just know that that's who I'm talking about when I say D. It sounds really weird, but it's just easier. Um, were his later stars were Alicia Markova, Anton Dahlin, and Lydia Sokolova. And all three were actually British, but I think that they had changed their names to fit in with, um, you know, Russian society, um, which choreographic cocktails were going on. And Dee's last choreographic discovery was George Balanchine, and he was the most, like, recent one-ish. And Balanchine was touring Western Europe with a small group of Soviet dancers when he was found by Dee in 1924. And... Just some notes about D was that he resembled um, a monarch in the way he presented himself. Um, he was very superstitious. And some fun facts was that he would literally have to wipe his hands after touching doorknobs. And he was not rich. Um, he was a diabetic who loved chocolates and champagne. I don't know why that was important to know. But, like, that was, you know, one of the things that I retained from the reading. Um, but he was very paranoid from... A fortune teller so he did not take any sea voyages for so long because i'm assuming that's how he was told he was gonna die um but then he actually did die in 1929 in venice in the city of canals which i mean canals is like a body of water right so yeah um ballet rue died with him when he died um but he proved that Ballet could be taken seriously and eloquent. And yeah, just some other stuff is that, um, I'm trying to think of what else I could say. I mean, I'm already at time, so I guess we're just going to conclude this episode right now. So you were going to pause it anyways, if I, uh, went over anyways, anyways, just keep saying anyways. Anywho, okay, I will see you next week. Not next week, two weeks 
for episode seven of Gabin with Gab. And I'm sorry I rambled on this long, but thanks for listening.